welcome to the very first episode of Fly on the Wall podcast. Very excited to uh, kick this thing off for you guys. My name is Aaron Bennett. My name is Christian Mesa. And we are your co-hosts slash roommates slash uh, political gurus, I guess, every Friday morning. Are we gurus? I don't think we're gurus. I think we have like <laughs> 12 resume lines before we're considered gurus. I, I think that's a fairly accurate way of describing ourselves. Uh, so... The first question you might have when you're, you're clicking on this podcast, and we thank you very much for clicking on this podcast, <laughs> uh, is what is this podcast? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm still not sure. <laughs> yeah, well, we are, uh, we're figuring it out just as you are, but basically our message with Fly on the Wall is to get inside the room where a lot of these important political decisions are made. Some might say be a fly on the wall. It's just not funny. <laughs> we're going to have to edit that part out. Like, I don't know why you'd say something like that. Are you serious? I think that's so funny. We'll see. So the real, the real point about this is it's not really what the decisions are, things you would find in a newspaper headline or in a newspaper article itself. It's not really why the decisions were made. It's more how the decisions were made. And I think that really speaks to the mission of our parent uh, organization, the Georgetown Institute of Politics and Public Service, as they seek to pull back the curtain and, and connect undergraduates and graduates at Georgetown with you know, what goes on in the political community right outside our, our gates. So I think that, uh, you know, we're playing uh, some small role in you know, bringing some of those stories back to, uh, back to the hilltop. Yeah, and not only back to the hilltop, but, you know, back to students in general. I mean, I think a lot of the point of GU politics is to make sure um, that students get access to political operatives, politicians that they wouldn't get access to, um, even living in D.C., so uh, that's kind of what we seek to do here. And we're not going to pretend in this entire podcast that we know everything. Uh, we don't know most things, I would say. I would agree with that. <laughs> um, I'd say we don't know anything. But. Um, what we will do is we will be the millennial political junkies that we are. People who spend hours on Twitter every day reading about what other people think about politics. Um, we like to think we're at least in tune to what's going on in the news. Yeah, and uh, I think that you know, our lack of formal experience in politics... Uh, it's kind of an advantage here because we feel like we can ask the questions to you know some of the big political professionals and sort of get inside their head by asking the sort of things that um, you know someone just starting out in this career field would want to know. Well, I wouldn't say we have no experience in politics. I would say that I have actually gotten Chipotle for congressman. Before. I was going to say the coffee runs probably don't count <laughs> for uh, for a lot of political cred, but I would say that you know we have a keen interest and we're excited to to do this thing. Yeah, and I think the fact that we don't have a lot of experience is why I think and I hope that this podcast does well. Um, we're trying to bring a fresh new look to what's going on in the world, what's going on um, on CNN every morning, um, and really try to um, tap into our you know student perspective. But beyond anything else, I think it's important to stay that we have the most awesome team behind us helping us do this podcast. So shout out to everyone who, who's worked with us and has been doing some amazing things. Uh, we're really excited to, to get rolling on this thing and, and make it a weekly uh, tradition here at Georgetown. Yeah, so let's get rolling. Uh, let's, uh, before we have our first guest come on, uh, it's really important that we introduce her. Um, Jen Saki is our first guest of this podcast. I could not be more excited. She is one of the most amazing people I've ever had the uh, opportunity to interact with. Uh, and she is a fellow for Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service this uh, semester. GU Politics. We for get sure. her. We get her all semester. Yep, it's gonna be really exciting. Uh, everyone, go to our office hours. Go to our discussion groups. Um, they are incredible. Um, definitely check her out. Um, so, what does she do? Is always a great question <laughs> that students ask when we bring fellows to campus. Is like, what does that actually mean? You can read a title. You can read 
um, what they've done. But, you know, what does she do? And that's what we hope to answer in our interview with her. Definitely. Well, the first thing to know about Jen is that she is a longtime Democratic communications expert. She has worked from everything, everywhere from uh, the, the congressional um, campaign staff for Democrats uh, to the Global Strategy Group, uh, working at the State Department for President Obama, and then finally coming back to be his communications director uh, during the last uh, few years of his administration. And frankly, I don't, I don't think there's a better time for having her on the podcast. Nope. Wouldn't you agree? Definitely I, not. I think a lot of the things that we want to ask her are just so timely, especially with the changing uh, evolution of the landscape of communications. You know, the way that... Changing is a very nice way of putting that, but yes. <laughs> you know, how, how people consume their news and, and, and how people... Um, hear from their leaders and interact with their leaders is changing by the day. And I think you know, having someone sharp, someone who is on the cutting edge of that transition, uh, is going to be really, really insightful as to what we can expect moving forward. Yeah, definitely. White House communications has changed dramatically between the last two administrations. Um, you know, we've seen that with um, Trump's press secretary. Uh, Trump has recently hired a new communications director. Um, and they are just dramatically different people from Josh Ernest and... Um, Jen Psaki, who were communications and press for President Obama. Um, and seeing those differences, and Jen will go into the differences as well, um, really just shows you know, the differences in styles of leadership. I think a, a strong case study uh, about this specifically is with the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. We're having a bloody, bloody battle over uh, whether or not to save the ACA. And, and the fact that it's even a battle is, I think, the most surprising thing that's as fascinating. well. Because... Obviously, for the last, you know, six, seven years, the message that has been re that Republicans have been repeating is repeal and replace. The second we get into power, it will be repeal and replace. And now they're in power. Is that still their message? Uh, I don't really think that's what we're hearing as much the last few weeks. And I think it's it's so interesting to see, you know, how that their, their phrasing and their language has changed. You know, it's gone from repeal and replace to maybe... Um, repair and replace. Rep repair and replace yeah. or repeal and repair or, or just finding different ways to couch it that's not, okay, let's scrap this piece of legislation that you know we've been fighting tooth and nail for the last uh, better, better part of a decade. Yeah, and um, you can definitely see that in all of the town halls that Republicans are holding right now. Yeah. Um, tons and tons and tons of constituents, Democrats and Republicans alike, are showing up to those town halls to voice... Um, you know, voice their problems um, and maybe their agreement as well, um, but definitely um, give their voice out to uh, their congressmen, their senators um, about the ACA specifically, because that is um, pretty much one of the biggest challenges that this Trump administration has had to deal with so far. And bring things close to home on the hilltop as well. As everyone knows, or I hope almost everyone knows, uh, we're in the midst of a contentious uh, presidential election, to say the least. So we want to get Jen's perspective on, you know, how do you win the communications battle uh, in, a, in a student election yeah. race? Yeah. You know, how do you distinguish yourself from another uh, ticket without falling into the trap of the same themes year, over, year after year? You know, how do you, how do you remain relevant and fresh, uh, but also distinct from your peers? Yeah, so with that, uh, ladies and gentlemen who are listening in right now, Everybody welcome Jen Saki. Jen Saki, welcome to the first episode of Fly on the Wall. Our we are first guest, I can't believe it. It's an honor. I've already told my friends who do Pod Save America that you guys are gunning for them. Okay. So <laughs> 
Uh, if we people like Pod Save America at Georgetown, they're going to love this podcast. Hopefully. Um, Those are big shoes to fill. I don't, yeah. know. I don't know if we necessarily Watch out. To that. They know you're coming. I think uh, we should like print you out a certificate or something as like the <laughs> official first guest of Fly on the Wall. I, I would love one. I'm going to hold you to it. Awesome. Uh, so we just want to start by talking about uh, your latest job. So your, your time in the Obama White House. Now we know you were there for a very, very, very long time. And I'm sure there are a lot of great memories that you have. But if you could pick one to be the number one on your highlight reel, what would that be? It would be uh, the day that the Affordable Health Care Act was, um, you know, basically solidified by the Supreme Court. And, uh, or I would say it, it's a two-day. I'm going to cheat a little bit. <laughs> because we'll allow um, it. <laughs> there was a two-day span where, uh, where the Supreme Court um, made, made health care the law of the land and also legalized gay marriage. And uh, I will also add that I was about eight months pregnant, so I was already emotional <laughs> and hot. Um, but, you know, in that period of time, um, you know, we had worked so hard and for so long. We had contingency plans for if it went the wrong way. But especially the day that the gay marriage um, uh, was legalized, um, you know, it was a day that was beautiful and sunny, um, and it was almost summer, so that's to be expected. Um, and the president went out in the Rose Garden, and all of the staff trickled out into the Rose Garden. And it was a moment where we just felt proud to be a part of it. And um, I knew um, that we had been planning, if the Supreme Court went that way, that we would light the White House in rainbow mm-hmm. colors. And that idea actually came from this guy named Jeff Tiller who worked for me. Yes, and I can now proudly say is my GU politics mentor. I'm really excited. He He's was, a, yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. He's one of the most talented people in press and communications. He's. I'm going to work for him one day. Well, that, that is, aside, now he's got to listen to this. Right. That aside, um, but it was his idea. He wrote a memo. Great. So we knew that was going to happen. So all day that was in our minds, and we were all emotional about the outcome of the Supreme Court. And then I remember uh, walking up to my office, and there was a screen of four TVs, and the president was at the um, funeral that day for the. Uh, Charleston shooting and so it was a very strange day and I turned around and he was singing Amazing Grace and I thought I mean my emotion I like get emotional thinking about it now but my emotional bandwidth it was like I didn't have anything more and I felt like I was just that was the day I will always remember and I felt it was I was part of something special so uh your first mention was about the ACA yeah um, and you talked about how you prepared for months and months for that. What did that preparation look like? What did you guys do to prepare for it? What was your day-to-day work life uh, leading up to that? So when any one of the most interesting times in the White House is when you're leading up to a Supreme Court decision mm-hmm. because you have no idea how they're going to go. You right. literally have no idea. Mm-hmm. You can speculate. You can guess. Every morning we would ask the White House counsel, Neil Eggleston, what do you think? He didn't know anything more. It was We'd all read the same in the newspaper, right? right? But what you have to do is prepare for every contingency. And so in the days leading up to it, uh, there was a team of people, and we denied we did this at the time, but of course <laughs> we did it, um, who were thinking about if the Supreme Court goes the wrong way, what do we do? Do we help states solidify um, components of the Affordable Care Act, you know, there were meetings probably on a daily basis. You're drafting talking points. You're not sending them over email because of all of the public right. records FOIA business. 
So you're just biting your nails. You also don't know what day the Supreme Court will come out with their decision. Mm -hmm. So you wake up on all those Supreme Court days, and around 9.55, you're thinking, (laughs) oh, God, is today the day? So it's a little bit of a frenetic time around Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court decisions, and certainly the Health Care Act is a perfect example of that. I've read this morning in a poll, actually, that it seems like the electorate is finally evenly split on, you know, loving the Affordable Care Act and, and hating it. And I know that was a big uphill mm-hmm. battle that you guys had to fight. So I guess, you know, what we, we sort of want to learn is how did you go about crafting that message that, you know, has finally made it so popular? You know, what about, you know, this heart and soul of this legislation that people have finally latched onto and has carried it, you know, to its popularity today? Well, one of the big lessons we learned is that statistics don't win people over and graphs don't win people over, people's stories win people over. And when we pulled apart the Affordable Care Act, people loved parts of it. You can stay in your parents' insurance, you uh, no discrimination if you have pre-existing conditions, things that even Donald Trump has said he likes, Right. And so those are things that became solidified as a part of what people understood not to be Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, but to be health care in America. Um, But really, we had to break it apart quite a bit. What you're seeing in Congress now, which is super interesting, is they cannot just repeal it without a replacement. And that has been a huge change over the last couple of months. It's really hard to take something away from people. And now you're talking about taking something away from 20 million Americans. That's not an easy thing to do. Republicans also don't want to get blamed. It's having an impact. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. (laughs) I remember one of the most impactful moments for me um, was, I don't remember remember exactly when, but the president was on stage talking about the Affordable Care Act, and he brings on this guy who was a lifelong Republican. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wisconsin. I I voted against you twice, but the Affordable Care Act saved my life. Yep. How do you go about finding those stories? How do you go about finding the narrative that is just going to break through and, and you know, sink in with people? Sometimes it's unpredictable, a lot of times. But a lot of how we found those stories were was from letters that were sent to the president. Mm. And there is an entire um, a team of people at the White House who reads those letters every day. There's actually an amazing cover story the New York Times Magazine yeah, did a few weeks ago. That, people yeah. should read about it because it's mm-hmm. interesting how it works. So, you know, he gets ten, He would get 10,000 letters a day at certain times. He would read 10. They were always a sampling of what kind of letters were coming in. So if 70% were negative, seven of them were negative about. And in there we found really amazing stories. And then we would reach out to those people and say, hey, we're coming to your town. The president would love to meet you. Would you be interested in introducing him? First, you'd talk to them a little bit. You've got to vet them. Um, But obviously, this was a case where he had an amazing story, and it really resonated because it showed this wasn't political. This was something that was actually saving people's lives, Mm -hmm. you know. I've seen a lot of that connection, too, between politicians and, you know, general constituents and social media. Mm -hmm. I know I've seen a lot of senators, a lot of congressmen come out and be like, if you have a story, um, if ACA has affected you personally, tweet at us, you know, come talk to us, yep. write us a letter. Right. Um, and I feel like that's, that's been a really big part of, you know, uh, the ACA's, like, upsurge. Yeah. Um, and it's serious popularity, so much so that even, you know, establishment Republicans are coming out and saying, look, maybe repeal and replace isn't our message anymore. Maybe repair and replace is our message. Yeah. And that's actually a perfect segue into what I wanted to ask and changing gears a little bit. Um, so let's say you were in charge of trying to roll back into this thing you worked so hard uh, to implement. <laughs> I know say, it's a weird, uh, a weird... An opposite thing. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, let's say you were in charge of the Republicans' uh-huh. comms message. 
what would you do different? You know, why, how would you go about crafting a better communication strategy? Because it's clear that you know, they didn't get the message right. You know, repeal and replace was not the language that yeah. was going to resonate with the American people. So, you know, what would you have done differently, and how would you go about sort of winning this communications battle? Well, you know, it's not always a communications problem, first of all. Um, <laughs> sure. And I think... <laughs> That's this the wrong is a thing case. to, say to communications. Uh, yeah, there you hopefuls. go. Yeah. Just yeah. Ha- I will get you guys T-shirts before the end of the semester <laughs> so that you can wear them in your future communications roles. Um, you know, this is this is not something I think is an easy thing to do as a Republican communications professional. There's division. There's a civil war in the Republican Party about this because they disagree about how to solve it. They don't have a plan to solve it. So what are you supposed to do? It can't be solved by talking points, really. Right. Um, you know, if I were them, I'd probably be focused on how um, costs have gone up and how they're insurmountable and how, um, you know, look at what ha- what's happened in states and the exchanges haven't worked. But even with that... Um, there are still personal stories of people who are alive because of it, and that's a really hard thing to compete with. Sure. Never would have said that about eight years <laughs> ago, just for the record. So you told them, uh, this, is a, this is a win for you guys. Uh, well, it's not, you're still, of course we're still worried, right. because a win is if it survives. Mm-hmm. Now, regardless of who was elected, even if Hillary Clinton was elected president, that this thing would have gone into the shop, because there are some things about it that aren't working, right, mm-hmm. or need sure. to be changed. This is obviously a much more dramatic change. Um, but I think the question is really, they have a small window to actually get something done, whatever they're going to call it repair and replace, repeal and replace. If they don't get that done this year, it is going to be look much better for the survival of it over the course of the long term. Uh, my next question, moving away from ACA a little bit, but more into Republican communications. Yes. Um, so the White House has recently hired a new communications director. Um, I think it's safe to say that every one of us in the room you know, wishes him good luck on what might be one of the hardest roles in Washington. Yes. Um, And the New York Times recently ran an article where they uh, were quoted in saying, in in discussions with associates, Mr. Dukey, the gentleman that was hired as the communications director, was was describing his view of the new White House role as an organizational one, helping to make the communications team more efficient. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that quote? Is that how you saw the position? Did you see it a little differently? Um, I think it's different depending on... Ever, who the president is, and I think there's only one communications director, and his name is Donald Trump, so <laughs> that's different. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate when I worked for President Obama, and I think this is true for people who worked for President Bush and President Clinton, that you develop a trust and rapport with the president so that they trust you to come to them with a strategic proposal about how to use their time, spend their time, approach issues. It's not that the communications director does it on their own, but they always have a seat at the table. And a big part of the role is determining the message and the strategy. Now, he is right that probably their biggest issue right now is an organizational one because they're understaffed, and as far as I can tell. Certainly. And mm-hmm. they're not staffed in the right way. I'm not sure they have a research department. If they don't have one, they need one, clearly. Um, so if he comes in and, and focuses on that for the next couple of months... That alone is a major contribution, even if he wants to leave after that. Um, and that may just be what they told him he needs to focus on for this period mm-hmm. of time. Well, I think you brought up a great point about how no matter who's in charge, you know, who's saying what, you know, the main message coming out of this White House is going to be through uh, the president's Twitter account. So you know, imagine if you were in those shoes, you know, 
how do you how do you go about approaching that? Do you do you try to counter the message? Do you just sort of roll with it? Steal you know, all of his technology? <laughs> I don't know. Lock Change his passwords. <laughs> Change all of his passwords. Um, you know, it's really easy to navel gaze on this because you what you want to what if you were dealing with a rational actor, which I'm not convinced he is, <laughs> you would say what you'd explain to him is when we have a great plan, like the rollout of their Supreme Court nominee, which actually I think they did a quite a good job Definitely. at, um, it's not great when you go and you tweet seven times in the next two mm-hmm. days. Even Mitch McConnell went out and said, I wouldn't be tweeting as much. Mm-hmm. So maybe he doesn't Which listen. something, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe. <laughs> right, exactly. It's very serious, yeah. Maybe he doesn't listen to rational arguments. But part of the role of a communications director or any senior advisor is to convey to the president when something isn't working and why. It's his, it's his choice whether he follows your advice or not. But in this case, him tweeting all the time is not keeping them on any sort of message that normal people seem to be following. Definitely. Uh, I guess another question that I have, um, going back to your experience, obviously there are a lot of things that um, need to get talked about. And when you're the communications director, it all sort of falls on you. And you need to make those tough decisions, you know, what do you handle on your own and what, you know, do you need to talk to uh, the big boss about? Uh, so where did you find that line? How did you go about finding what you thought you could, you know, authorize and message on your own and, and what you thought the president had to get involved in? Uh, you know, I think the role of the communications director, in my experience, was if it was something the president cared deeply about, oftentimes you were brought into the process. And that meant that you'd talk to him about the issue more and how he wanted to respond on the issue. But for the most part, my rule of thumb was if it's something that is going to use a significant amount of his time or if it's something that is a little out of the zone of what a president typically does, I'm going to ask him about it. And it doesn't have to be a 25-minute conversation. It can be presented in a series of options. But, um, you know, that's, you know, I, I would approach it that way. But oftentimes, a lot of the guidance we would get from him was when he was uh, talking about what he wanted to say in a speech um, or how he wanted to talk about certain issues in remarks. And he's a writer, as everybody knows, and so we would use that and words he'd already used in the past to help determine how to message things. Do you want to talk to us about, you know, uh, a lot of what we want to do on this podcast is talk about, you know, the, the nitty-gritty details, yep. uh, things that people wouldn't know or people wouldn't have access to, yeah. you know, in a headline or even in an article. Um, what was the thing you did, you know, a little thing you did every day to make your job easier um, and you felt, you know, really contributed to your success? Uh, I am a big to-do list writer. Okay. And <laughs> I think that is essential for any communications director. Um, agree more. There you go. Um, it's so helpful. It's so helpful, and I, you know, would categorize and sort of order things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to go back to what the incoming communication director said, you manage a huge staff as the communications director, so there's a lot of balls in the air at all times, and you want to kind of keep track. I would have long-term and short-term to-do lists sure. and all sorts of things. Um, that was pretty pivotal for me. Mm-hmm. Um you know, in order to kind of maintain sanity and not lose track of things. Yeah, speaking as the roommate of Aaron Bennett, uh, <laughs> I think Aaron probably spends about half of his time on his to-do list. See, I, I feel like I can be <laughs> most productive when I'm reorganizing my to-do list. How good does feel it like feel to something. cross something off? Right? <laughs> exactly. I feel like I have control of my day. Now, I, I have, have to-do list. Is this a habit you picked up in college, or is this something that you just sort of 
uh, picked up in the workplace. I would say more in the workplace. So you're definitely ahead of me. So there's hope for you, Christian. Right? I, one day. <laughs> one day I did steal probably a hundred White House note cards. Oh, <laughs> like card stock. And they're the perfect size mm-hmm. that I write to-do lists on. When they run out, I'm not sure what I do. <laughs> do and that will be at some point in the next few months. Totally <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, maybe send an email to the new communications <laughs> right, director. See if know. you can get some. I've, I've been, been such a slides. friend of the new administration. I'm sure <laughs> Um, I guess we just have uh, another question that we got from, actually, a student contribution. Her name is Kendall Solwanik. She's a sophomore in the college from Columbus, Ohio, majoring in Justice and Peace Studies. And she wants to know, very simply, why? (laughs) You you are very often the bearer of very, very, very bad news. And and a lot of it comes, you know, your voice and your message that you're crafting. So, you know, what got you to work every day knowing that you're going to have significant challenges and, and often have to deliver very grave news to the American people. Wow, that makes it sound depressing. Um, <laughs> what I would say, Kendall, is it's, it's actually working in government, working in the White House, especially for a president you believe in, regardless of your political party, is really much more of a joy. And it should be a joy. And for me, it was having a front seat to history and really being a part of decisions that were made or moments that sometimes you have to pinch yourself. I, <laughs> one of the pieces of advice I gave um, the incoming team was any day that you're kind of losing a sight of what you're a part of, there's a walk. So you probably have seen the pictures. There's the Rose Garden, then there's the colonnade. The president walks on the colonnade yeah. home every day. Mm-hmm. You can Staff can walk there. You walk on the colonnade. You walk all the way out the East Wing, um, and, it, and you walk all through the historic rooms. And it is a reminder of where you are. And if you lose sight of that, then it may be time to kind of take a breather. But really, my biggest complaint was that I was extremely tired and still (laughs) am. Um, But not that I had some burden of delivering bad news. That's part of a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. But in government, you're making policy happen, making, you know, history happen. Yeah, I feel... I feel like I hear that a lot from ex-Obama administration people. Is that were tired? You? Well, <laughs> that is definitely something we've heard. That's a consistent um, theme, I would say. I think, I feel like that's true for all administrations. Yes. You might be a little tired um, that's true. in the morning. Uh, but I feel like you hear a lot of, you know, being a part of something bigger. Yes. You know, um, and that's kind of why people showed up to work every day. Do you think that was um, the White House in general? Like, do you think that's just the office? Or do you think that was, you know, President Obama specifically? Well, I've only worked for one president. Very true. But (laughs) I think it is part the office. Mm -hmm. And um, what is unique about this current president and current White House is that this team of people didn't work on the campaign together and deal, for the most part, and deal, live in like blood, sweat, tears, fatigue, are we losing, are we winning days, months, Mm -hmm. Years even, like we, the Obama team did, like the Clinton team did, I mean Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. like the Bush team did, maybe Reagan, I have no idea. Um, that gets way back. So, yeah. <laughs> way back. Um, so, and that builds this feeling that you're a part of something larger, because you're part of working for the president, right. but you're also part of a family, and a part of a team, and a mm-hmm. part of a group of people who... You may want to kind of strangle them someday, but you love them like your siblings, and that's uh, you know a unique thing about working in the White House. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, so going from 
the President of the United States to the President here at Georgetown. Yes. So by the time this podcast drops, the student body will have voted for a new student body president. Oh. It's yes. very early to do this transition, at least in my opinion. Um, there's, are there's, you endorsing a candidate? We are, we not, are not endorsing um, a candidate. Um, I, Did you consider it? Um, I don't know. I don't... You know, I don't follow campus politics too, too much, uh-huh. to be completely honest with you, um, but I do see all of their signs across campus, which okay. is what we did want to talk to you about. Basically, our question is, uh, if you were running a presidential campaign on a college campus, yeah. how would you go about crafting that message? Because to be frank, you know, it seems a lot of times, year after year, it's, it's a lot of the same message of uh, diversity and inclusion, which are great things, but how do you go about setting yourself apart and really winning that on-the-ground uh, communications game? Uh, on a college campus? Well, um, I'm just going to go nerdy here for a second. <laughs> Please do. Um, <laughs> that's what we're here for. Yeah. I would want to know a couple things. What is the percentage of the population of the student body that typically votes? Wow. And what are those demographics? Um, because you want to think about who your audience is for your campaign. And if the people who typically vote are freshmen and sophomores and not juniors and seniors, mm-hmm. that's probably not the case. I'm just making it up. No, that is not the case. case. I think yeah. what it, I don't want to pull statistics out, but it was, it was a very low percentage of seniors who okay. actually voted last yeah. year. Yeah, makes sense, mm-hmm. right, I guess. So, and maybe it's 70% female. I can't imagine that's the case. I'm just making it up. Sure. Then that will impact your campaign message, right? Mm-hmm. And in terms of the mood of the campus right now, I mean, I've only been here for about a month, so mm-hmm. I'm not an expert on that. So mm-hmm. I need to do more data gathering sure. on that to determine sort of what people need and, you know. Wow. But I think what I would say to any candidate, when's the election? It's uh, Vote tomorrow. Voting is tomorrow. Uh, well, yes. they, don't have, they don't have a lot of time. They're very precious. But <laughs> authenticity matters. Mm-hmm. We've seen that in, in every campaign, nationally, locally. And so be your authentic self, speak from the heart, and I think people will relate to it. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a deep dive. Right? Uh, you never really think that you know, real politics <laughs> can apply to, sure, to, uh, a, to a campus election. election. I will say, I will commend um, the genius that is the, um, the ticket that I won't name just because I don't want to you know, put anyone out there. But one ticket actually, um, there is a campus wing spot on campus oh. uh, called Wingo's. Which we, are, they are not one of our sponsors. No, they are not. My sister um, went to Georgetown. I know a lot. Okay. So you know Wingo's. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they do this thing every uh, Wednesday called uh, Word of the Day. Um, and if you like say the Word of the Day, you get half off. And uh, this ticket has actually managed to make their Word of the Day um, the name of the two people. Such a power move. Oh. It's, it's genius. Brilliant. Like, it is... Probably one of the best tactics. Like, it, yeah. it is incredible political campaign. Now, does the large population of people go to Wingo's? I can't speak for that. I know we go weekly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and ritual. you guys will vote. So anecdotally, exactly. probably. So it is working, <laughs> is what <laughs> I will say. Okay, there you go. We'll see if they win. Awesome. So our final question um, is a question that we hope to, and again, this is our first episode, but we do hope to end with, um, with every guest that we bring on to this podcast. Um, and because we have a college theme, Mm-hmm. What is your advice if you could go back and tell your college freshman self? What would you tell them? Um, don't write your papers the night before; they'll be better. <laughs> um, I would, you know, I um, I would say to um, take advantage of everything that your college community has to offer. And frankly, if you're going to Georgetown, the city you live in has to offer. <laughs> I, in college, I went to William & Mary, um, but I didn't take advantage of all of that. I wish I'd, I wrote for the student newspaper. I didn't. I wish I had spent more time, um, you know, venturing out to other places. You're in Washington, D.C. 
go do a tour of Congress, go visit the archives, um, go visit a network. Um, I would say take advantage of, of the fact that you're here. Um, and um, I certainly didn't have the maturity. I'm sure most Georgetown students have uh, when I was in college. Wouldn't so. be too short. Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> I've met a lot of them now. Um, so uh, that would probably be my biggest piece of advice. And, and the second one would be don't, don't feel like you have to figure out what you're going to do with your life. Mm-hmm. Um, life is a journey. You will all probably have five to ten jobs before you're my age. Mm-hmm. So don't predetermine it. Let life lead you to what your jobs and what your career options mm-hmm. um, should be, and you may surprise yourself. It's very comforting because I know as roommates we have panic attacks about what we're going to be doing <laughs> with our lives almost every other day. So. Every every day is probably more accurate, every day, but yeah. <laughs> oh, I know what you guys are going to do. We'll, we'll talk <laughs> offline. We'll see. <laughs> um, before we end, really quickly, do you want to plug your discussion groups for sure. the politics? Sure. Please do. So uh, we have our next discussion group on Friday um, from 12 to 1.30. We're focused on the bad side of social media, how ISIL, the terrorist organization, mm. is using mm-hmm. it to recruit people. What do we do to address that? What should the government do? What should media do? We have another discussion group on Monday that is going to focus on, wait for it, the joint session speech on Tuesday. Awesome. Um, that's from 2 to 3.30. We're going to talk a little bit about how you use social media to get your message out now that the bully pulpit is dead. But uh, we'll also talk more about the speech and what to expect and how they're previewing. Crazy. You got back-to-back crazy. Back-to-back. Yeah, right. It's very topical. And it. free pizza for both. There Always you go. <laughs> That's how you win the hearts of a Georgia. That should be the answer in the, in the, the election. Food. I feel like not even <laughs> just a Who offers the free food? Who offers the free food? Who up for Wingos on Wednesday? Wingos. There we go. People want Wingos. We'll have that at another one. I think that sounds like a Genius. Thing. We'd be there. Um, Jen Saki, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. See you next Friday for the next episode of Fly on the Wall. I think that should be our thing. <laughs> <laughs>